Hello, everybody. Greetings and welcome to the Ask Abhijit Show. I hope you're all doing very well. Uh, before we begin, let's see who all is there. Let's see. Let me greet everybody. Mohit, Justin, Aniket, Srihari, Dungar Singh Johan, Amay, Alphaverse, Avinandan Sen, Hardik, Arya, Ashish, Mohit, Bot Gaming, Tanushri, Samarth, Akash, Amit Panchal, Kasta, Jivana, Bluebird, Shubham, Subhita, Vicky, Ujwal, Keshav, Om Naik, Jugal Shet, Amit, Arjun, Asmenor, Teach Intern, Gyandeep, Pushkar, Watsal, Nikhil, Lavish, Sanathoibi, Hello, Ankur Bhatt, Harshraj, Rahul, Aditya, Om, Srihari, and uh, Chiching, Arya, Rakshita, and everybody else. Greetings. Great to see you all. And uh, I hope you're all doing well, like I said. And let's get into the questions. I have picked a bunch of questions and let's see how many I can answer tonight. I suppose I should begin with the question that uh, the people have asked the most. So let me get into that. So this is by Rajat Chopra. The question is, why are the Arab countries condemning Nupur Sharma's statement on whatever. This seems like a coordinated effort. What's your take on this issue? Okay, so I'm going to answer the geopolitical aspect of this. I'm not going to go into what the lady said, whether it's right, whether it's wrong. I'm not getting into that. I'm going to answer the geopolitical aspect. So the entire, uh, this entire scenario, this entire, entire situation started with the statements by Qatar, right? And uh, most of the other Arabic, etc. countries followed suit. So let's understand what really is happening here. Let's talk about Qatar. Do we know where Qatar is? Let me show where Qatar is in case uh, some of you may not know it. Uh, let me go to the map and, show, and, and take a look at where, where Qatar is. So we know where India is, obviously. So let's go westwards to the uh, Arabic Peninsula. And here we have this tiny nation of Qatar. All right, this is where Qatar is. The capital is Doha. And uh, the entire fracas, so, so to say, started with the statement of Qatar. So let's take a look at the history and the background of Qatar just a bit to understand what's happening. So this nation, Qatar, used to be a British protectorate. It was a British protectorate until 1971, right? Then, if you go if you go further a couple of decades, it was the launch. It was one of the launch pads for the 1991 U.S. invasion of Iraq. It was also a launch pad for the 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq. Qatar participated in the 2011 U.S. operations in Libya, which deposed the dictator Muammar Gaddafi. Qatar is known to be funding anti-Assad, anti-Russia rebel groups, rebel groups in Syria. Now, why don't you take a look at which, which groups uh, constitute the so-called rebels fighting against Putin and, and Assad in Syria? It's very interesting names will turn, turn up over there, right? So Qatar is funding anti-Russia, anti-Assad rebel groups in Syria, right? Qatar is participating in the supposedly Saudi-led war in Yemen. Now, we know who the Saudis work for, who is the puppet master of the Saudis. We know who that is. I hope you all know who that is. That's what Qatar is doing. Qatar also facilitated Afghanistan's handover 
from the US to the Taliban. And most recently, Qatar has been designated by the US as a major non-NATO ally. And we know that the, uh, the TV channel Al Jazeera uh, operates out of Qatar. So essentially, if you look at this entire sequence, this entire pattern, if you look at it, it becomes quite obvious that Qatar is a sock puppet of the United States. That's what Qatar is. And Qatar, I believe, was designated a major non-NATO US ally right after the, or right around the uh, Russian uh, intervention in Ukraine. And we know the attitude, what the attitude of the US and the West has been vis-a-vis the Indian stance on Ukraine. India has steadfastly refused to take sides in, in the Ukraine crisis. And India is looking out for its own national interest. And that has not gone down with the West, especially the US. The West is the US. And then all of this has started. So Qatar is the first nation in the in the Gulf region that issued whatever statements it issued against India, condemning whatever, right? And various other uh, Gulf nations followed suit. All of these Gulf nations are essentially, in some way or the other, sock puppets of the superpower. And of course, very, some, some very bright and intelligent people will point out, hey, Abhijit, even the Taliban issued a statement. Even Iran issued a statement. These are not puppets of the US. Well, there is something called FOMO, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. So that's what motivates motivated countries like Iran and regimes like the Taliban to also follow suit because we don't want to be left out when everyone is doing this. Right. So uh, the question you're asking is that what you're saying is that this seems like to be a coordinated effort. Obviously, it's a coordinated effort. The United States is really upset with India for taking the stance it has taken in the Ukraine uh, crisis. The US wants India to bend the knee and, and become a part of the of the well <laughs> of the coalition of the willing, essentially become a vassal state of the US. India will not do that. And therefore, the US is trying everything in the in the book, in the playbook, to pressurize India and to and to hit hit back at, at India in a variety of ways. It will use use all the tools at its disposal to do that. So what we are witnessing is a continuation of that. These Arabic countries, like I have mentioned multiple times, and I have demonstrated this, India has excellent relations with these Arabic countries, with whether it's the Saudi, Saudis, whether it is Oman, whether it's the UAE or whatever else. India has excellent relations with them. And uh, it's just because of external influence that these countries are doing what they're doing. So this is a passing phase. It doesn't mean that our relations have gone bad with these countries. It doesn't mean that we have capitulated in front of their superior firepower or whatever. What we are seeing is a manifestation of a bigger power at play. And that power is way more powerful than India is as of today. And therefore, it is prudent. It is prudent to play the long game. Let them get some small wins now. doesn't matter. What matters is the long-term <laughs> prosperity of the nation and the long-term national security and national interest. That's what matters. So uh, I know lots of people have expressed all kinds of outrage on social media that India has bent the knee, this government is so weak, blah, 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 blah. That is not the case. This government is playing a long game. Now, you may see it whichever way you want. This is how I see it.
So this is what I have to say about this issue. Right, next question. This is by Bruh. Bruh. Uh, the question is, could you give a brief, a brief on Machiavelli's dualistic strategy of a fortuna and a virtu? Could you give examples of events from this century? Okay. Fortuna and Vertu is not a dualistic strategy. These are two concepts that Machiavelli, Niccolo Machiavelli, uh, wrote about in his works. His, his, his most famous work, obviously, is The Prince. right? The Prince by Niccolo Machiavelli. That's what makes him so famous. So in his works, in his writings, he wrote about these two concepts, Fortuna and Vertu. All right? What are these two things? So Fortuna is the things you can't control. See, Machiavelli wrote about power. He wrote about what a ruler should do in order to uh, to rule properly, to, to hang on to power, to stay in power, and to maximize his power, and to rule effectively, and so on, right? So, according to Machiavelli, there are two main forces in... Uh, there are two main forces at work when it comes to rule, to, when it comes to power, to, when it comes to ruling a nation or a people or a kingdom or whatever, or an empire, right? The first force at work is fortuna, which is those things that you can't control. Fortune, chance. Let's say you are the king of a city, which is sitting on the banks of a river, right? It's a major river. And suddenly there's a huge, massive flash flood that comes. The, the river goes into a massive flood. And it what's going to happen? It's going to destroy the city. This is something the king cannot control. That is fortuna. What is virtu? Virtue is not being good. It means the ability to, to stay in power. The ability to rule effectively and, and well. That is virtu. So let's say you are a king of a city that is sitting on the banks of a river. The river, once in 50 years, undergoes a big big spate of flooding. The king knows this. He knows that this is something he cannot control. But he can build dams, he can build embankments, and he can do whatever it takes in order to minimize the effect, the deleterious effect of the flooding. So that is what the king can do. He cannot control when the flood will happen. He cannot control the, the magnitude of the flood. But he can control his actions in, in mitigating of a possible future flood. So that is virtue. Where to? Right? So the ability. The Chinese call it the mandate of heaven. If you are in, if you are in power and if you are able to rule effectively, then you have the mandate of heaven. Then the gods are smiling on you. Things are there which you can't control, but whatever you can control, you do it the best. Do you do it to the best of, of, of your ability? That is virtue. That is the virtue of a ruler. It doesn't mean the ruler has to be virtuous and noble and kind and benevolent and all that. It means that the ruler should know how to rule and how to stay in power and how to uh, rule effectively and hopefully do something good for the country. That may also be part of virtue, but it's all the ability to rule well. That is virtue. So fortuna is what you can't control. Virtue is what you can do in to the maximum amount of your ability. These are the two things. These are the two, the two forces that are in balance when it comes to ruling. Right? So that's what Machiavelli wrote about. The dualistic strategy of fortuna and virtue. Things you can't control and things you can control. 
and the interplay of these two forces. So that's what it is. Events from the century, events every day are a combination of Fortuna and Vertu. So it is something that does apply in, in, in the real world. I mean, you, <laughs> you, can, you can think, I mean, look at the current events in Afghanistan. There are certain things, most of it, so ask, let's ask ourselves this question. The Americans recently, last year, in August, around August, they withdrew from Afghanistan. How much of this was Fortuna and how much was Vertu? How much of this was unforeseen circumstances that forced them to withdraw? And how much of this was their own decision to withdraw? I think it was all their own decision to withdraw. I think they, were, they got tired of it, right? They, they decided that the time was opportune for them to leave Afghanistan. And they handed over the country to the Taliban, using Oman as, as an intermediary in the process, right? Uh, so that sort of thing. So these are the two main forces at play in the career of any ruler, of any regime, of any government. Things they can do and things they can't control. And the best rulers have a great amount of virtue and they rule well and effectively. So those are the most powerful and most uh, impactful rulers and regimes. So that's a little bit about, about Fortuna and Verto. Next question is by Asmita. It is said that the Portuguese discovered the sea route to India in 1498. Yes, 1492 was, was uh, Columbus reaching America. And 1498 was Vastaka da Gama going around the Cape, Cape of Good Hope and reaching uh, Calicut, India. So they discovered the sea route to India in 1498. There's a gap of more than a century thereafter for the British to reach India. As they first came to India in 1608, what do whether the reasons for such a long gap are known? All right, good question. So the Portuguese uh, first came to India in 1498, and the British came more than a century later. Why, why this big gap? So to understand why it took the British so long to get their act together, you have to look at British history. So if you look at the history of England around this time, late 1400s to the 1600s, you will see that there's a lot of turmoil, political turmoil, instability. You had the Plantagenet dynasty, which was in power in the 1400s, Edward IV from mid, from 1460s to 1480s. Yeah, that was Edward IV. Then you had Edward V, who was there for a few, just one year, less than one year. Then you had his uncle, Richard III, who came to power in 1483. And he was in power for two, two and a half years. Then there was this great battle, the Battle of Bosworth Field, in which Richard III was killed and the Tudor dynasty began, Henry VII, right? So, uh, and Richard III is a very celebrated king. He was supposed to be very evil and all that. And they recently discovered his skeleton under a car park just uh, two, three, four, two, three years ago, right? A very interesting case. So, so in 1485, I believe, uh, Rich, uh, Henry V came to power, the first ruler of the Tudor dynasty. He ruled for quite a while until the 1500s, 1509, 1510. Then Henry VIII came to power. Now, Henry VIII is, is this great king, you know. Uh, he ruled for like almost 
nearly 40 years. His rule was quite tumultuous. He was very ambitious. He, he, he saw himself as a world conqueror or whatever, at least conqueror of Europe, but he never really did anything. He had many, many wives. He killed many of them. He had them beheaded and all crazy guy. But very interesting ruler. So the, there was this entire period of instability. So this begins, uh, the, the Edward IV was the 1460s. Henry VIII was until the 1540s, 1547, I think he died. Then there was more instability. His daughter, Henry VIII's daughter came to power, Mary I, also known as Bloody Mary, who tried to undo everything her father has, had done. She uh, reintroduced uh, Catholicism as the main uh, uh, de facto religion of, of the country. She she tried to undo everything her father did. So she was in power for about five years. More instability because of that. Then after her, her half-sister Elizabeth I came to power in 1558, I think. And she ruled for nearly half a century. So it is when Elizabeth came to power that things stabilized. And her age was known as the Elizabethan age, the golden, one of the golden ages, maybe the golden age of England. Uh, and she reintroduced her father's policies, uh, Protestantism and uh, the Anglican church and all that. And she was quite liberal. She was quite fond of the sciences and progress and all those things. So it is under her rule that uh, England became a scientific superpower and a technological superpower. They, there were some these conflicts with the Spanish in which the British, the English Navy was able to defeat the Spanish, the Spanish Armada and all that. And it's only in the around the end of the 16th century that things were quite stable, that England was stable and prosperous. And I think it is in 1599 that the East India Company was formed and the first contact, the first ship of this company reached India, I think in 1608. Surat in Western India. And the first factory was established in Surat in 1613. And a couple of years later, there was a second factory established in Southern India, in Machilipatnam, and so on and so forth. So there's a gap of a century between the Portuguese uh, supposedly rediscovering India and the British making contact with India because of this entire period of instability, political instability, infighting and all that in England. So that is the reason why there's a, such a long gap. Hope that makes sense and good question. Right. Prashant says, can India fulfill all its oil requirements from Russia in order to reduce dependency on the Gulf countries? If yes, then why isn't the government doing so? Why do we trade with countries that have agendas against us? Okay. I'm sure that the Russians can supply all the oil that India needs. So India can cut off all, it, all, it, uh, all its ties with the Gulf and get everything from Russia. But then will it not create a dependency on Russia itself? Think about that. See, in any, in geopolitics, in business, in trade, in investing, in whatever, in life, you cannot be dependent on only one source of whatever, of energy, of money, or of income, or whatever. You need to have a balanced portfolio. Let's say you're an investor. Let's say you have one crore rupees to invest. Let's say you have a million dollars to invest that you wish to, wish to invest somewhere. Will you invest all of that into just the stock of one company? What if the company crashes? You're going to lose all your money. You need to have a balanced portfolio. You need to look, you need to look at <laughs> the different companies that are out there 
and invest in the best performing companies the com- companies that have been performing well for a long time those are good bets and you can have some part of your some percentage of investment in more speculative ventures maybe cryptocurrency maybe nfts maybe some new upcoming uh, startups or whatever so you need to have balanced portfolio you cannot put all of your eggs in one basket you cannot put all of your money on one horse similarly when it comes to energy uh, supply when it comes to oil when it comes to the, yeah oil we need to make sure that we have multiple sources that we rely on if we put all of our bets on russia and something goes wrong there we don't want anything to go wrong there but what if something goes wrong then what will we do if we burn our bridges with the other countries what do we do we're going to be in in trouble that's why we need to have a balanced portfolio we need to get some oil from the gulf from the saudis uh, from from oman from kuwait from from iran get some oil from venezuela get some oil from nigeria get some oil from russia get it from multiple sources keep your 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 basket balanced that's what we need to do maybe some of these countries have agendas against us so what we are giving them good money for something that is useful to us we can trade with our enemies we trade with china come on china the chinese are not fr- india's friends we know what they seek we know what they seek but we trade with them as long as it benefits us we can engage in such activities right so that is why we are not cutting off our uh, sources our our uh, uh our trade with the gulf companies we need their oil and it's a mutually beneficial relationship we have cultivated a very good relationship with various gulf countries with the saudis with the uh, omanis with the kuwaitis and so on and so forth with the, with the parsi i mean the iranians persians and we're going to continue that it is in our national interest to do that and that's what will continue so that's the reason and and we are certainly importing oil from the russians why not they are offering us oil at good prices at at uh, discounted rates we will certainly take advantage of that and we have increased the amount of oil that we are purchasing from the russians it's all about your national interest it's all about mutual interests mutual benefits so that's how we play the game that's how the game is played in geopolitics next the question uh, what okay earthian that's wrong what's wrong after atal bihari vajpayee the economy of of india was still growing it even reached 8.7% per annum after 2012 it started to go go down slow down in 2019 it was down to 5% it went to minus 23% during covid now it's rising again so this gentleman or lady whoever it is is saying that so i had made a statement somewhere sometime somewhere that uh after 2004 the economy kind of tanked right so maybe there was not a very accurate statement but what i said is that during the upa uh, era 10 years the economy the policies the economic policies were not good enough and the economy tanked so this gentleman is pointing out pedantically <laughs> so uh, that uh, for some time it was doing well it reached 8.7% per annum and only after 2012 it started to go down so let's let's understand how things are in in life whether it is in a sport whether it is in a business whether it is in entrepreneurship whether it is in running a country whether it is in in 
the economy. There is always a characteristic delay between cause and effect. Right? Let's say you, you have a website and you are you have been doing SEO, search engine optimization, but you are not getting the kind of results you want. You're only getting uh, 10,000 visitors per month. Then you bring in a new person for SEO and they change the strategy. They tweak things up. So are you going to see results overnight? No. After they implement the new policy, it will take a certain amount of time before the results become visible. There is a characteristic inherent delay between cause and effect. Let's say you, uh, you are the manager of a football club. Your club is doing terribly. So you, the, the major manager is sacked, a new manager is brought in. This new manager implements a lot of changes. He brings he sacks a lot of non-performing players. He brings in a bunch of uncapped young players with a lot of potential. He changes the tactics, strategies, everything. You think you will see results overnight? You may have another bad season. But if you keep on doing this, maybe next season you will see the results. There is always a gap between cause and effect. A characteristic time delay. When it comes to the economy, Mr. Vajpayee, during his time, he implemented lots of reforms in the economy. In a nation of 1.3 billion people, when you implement reforms, there's going to be a significant amount of time before you see results. So whatever work was done during the Vajpayee government until 20, 2004, what happened after 2004 is that the Vajpayee government lost the election. A new government came in and they started reaping the benefits of the reforms the Vajpayee government had done. And the economy started rising. It started doing well. It's only after 2012 that the new changes that the new government had made became apparent. I mean, their, their effect became apparent. And that's how the economy started going down. In 2014, Mr. Modi's government came to power. They started on a, on a, on a program of reforms. And for the longest time, nothing was visible. The economy was not doing well. Only now are we seeing the results of all the reforms that were done since 2014. Now the economy is rising. It's rising, it's rising, it's rising, and it's going to keep rising. Of course, there is volatility globally. That also has an effect. But overall, the graph is rising now. There is a significant delay between cause and effect when you're running a massive, gigantic country of 1.3 billion people. When it comes to the reforms that you implement and the time for it, for those results to be visible in, in the real world, for the effect on the economy to be visible. So please understand this, whether it is a sport, whether it is business, whether it's running an economy, there is always a characteristic delay between cause and effect. And the best players understand that delay very well. So if you're a business person, if you're a sports person, and if you understand how much time it's going to take for something to be to become apparent, then you're going to do very well. And if you have no idea of how it works, you will give up before you will see results. That's how it is. Okay, this is a tremendously long question. Alai Patel says, Abhijit is right. Mao was very clear in his mind. He did not know how, but he definitely knew what. His opponent, the founder of Taiwan, Chiang Kai-shek, was also very clear-headed. On the other side, all Indian leaders of the subcontinent, Gandhi, Nehru, Jinnah, never had any clarity of what they wanted to do. This lack of clarity is a signature quality of an Indian mind. Wow, that's... Okay. 
the lack of clarity is a signature quality of an indian mind the indian mind can never be clear going as far as chandragupta or ashok we see this problem those two guys also royally destroyed their own empire created by chanakya in a way clarity of mind is not an ex- accident it's a very rare phenomenon among all races as of now only the western and far eastern countries show clarity of mind the only hope for us is to learn from the gita and other indian texts and get some clarity of mind chances are very slim if it had to happen it would have happened we are staring at an iron home wall we should give up and we are doomed <laughs> okay so uh, what alai is saying is that uh, the lack of clarity is a signature the lack of clarity is a signature quality of the indian mind and ever since the time of chandragupta and ashok we are seeing this pattern chandragupta apparently destroyed his own empire i'm sorry <laughs> did chandragupta destroy his empire he forged an empire out of nothing and ashok expanded that empire so that's that's not quite consistent with reality but okay uh, and after then after that time there has been no clarity of mind in any indian uh, ruler or whatever so uh, what was the kushan empire which stretched all the way to the caspian and the aral seas some will say oh, Kush- kanishka was not indian okay even if that is absolutely not true but even if that is the case what about the gupta empire which again conquered all the way to bahlik balkh and and beyond most likely and the whole whole of the indian subcontinent uh, samudragupta for instance did he not possess clarity of mind samudragupta if you look at his career his entire career from start to finish was an extended military campaign no clarity of mind i think he had singular clarity of mind the same goes for kumaragupta the same goes for uh, for uh, skandagupta and so on what about lalitaditya muktapida the great kashmiri conqueror the great kashmiri king he conquered most of india he also conquered central asia did he not have clarity of mind my dear friends what about the great chola emperors rajaraja chola and rajendra chola Rajendra Chola conquered the entirety of Southeast Asia. Was there no clarity of mind there? He conquered all the way to the Philippines. You still find inscriptions in Sanskrit in the Philippines. Was there no clarity of mind? What about uh, the the great Marathas? What about the great Shivaji, the great Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj? Did he not have clarity of mind? Please let us see. It's like this: all general statements are false. Do you see the? inherent contradiction in what i just said i said all general statements are false and that itself is a general statement so i totally disagree with the assessment here that the lack of clarity is a signature quality of an indian mind that is not the case and this 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 sort of perception or this sort of uh, uh, this uh, belief is the consequence of the last 1000 years of humiliation india has gone through it is still undergoing it is still passing through the millennium of humiliation in which you had defeat after defeat you had a lot of resistance you had victories as well you had the maratha empire which defeated the invaders and so on but again we fell prey to the next invader the the, the europeans the british and so on so we have gone through a millennium of humiliation and because of that and especially because of the education system which teaches us that we are all losers that's why we p- people get get this uh, 
sense or this feeling or this this uh, belief that indians are losers our people are are, are not great uh, the lack uh, the signature quality of an indian mind is a lack of clarity and so on that's not the case even today we have certain leaders who have a singular clarity of mind and purpose and like i said some time ago there's always a certain delay between cause and effect so be patient my friends wow this is a big 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 thing let's let's take a look this is by mohammed ahmad mohammed ahmad greetings from pakistan you defeated us you defeated us four times since independence every time you guys declared a ceasefire without capturing any territory of ours you might even defeat us fifth and even sixth time you guys might defeat us defeat us a hundred times you guys are not undefeatable we can afford to lose a hundred battles we will certainly be attacking you a 101st time as well you cannot afford to lose a single battle you have to win every battle but we want just one victory to capture your territory and obviously to genocide you i am a teacher in rawalpindi i teach this predator philosophy to my students have a good day so this is what uh, mr mohammed ahmad has to say he teaches this predator philosophy to his students so i would like to say to mr ahmad thank you so much for sharing this with us you have you thank you for your honesty so this is what india is up against india we can say all we want about us being the same people hamara dna ek hi hai we have the same dna all of us yeah it's true it's true indians and pakistanis have the same dna indians and the pashtuns have the same dna we are the same people we have the same ancestors and yet this is the attitude in pakistan this is what they teach them and it's true that we have fought four wars since 1947 each of those wars was initiated by pakistan india responded india did not fire the first shots ever india defeated pakistan every single time right and it was india that declared a ceasefire every time without capturing any significant territory yes india liberated bangladesh in 1971 but india did not reincorporate bangladesh into india india allowed bangladesh to become a separate nation so once again india did not capture any territory and whatever little territory was captured here and there was given away by the politicians after the ceasefire and uh, like mr ahmad is saying we can defeat them 100 times but we never never going to do to them what they want to do to us so all it will take for them is to def- defeat india once so that is something this is a rare moment of of honesty so i would like to really uh, thank mr ahmad for for sharing this with us and this is what they they are made to teach and maybe maybe they agree with it this is what their students are taught over there in pakistan so understand this my friends and i'm sure the indian government knows this this is a different kind of government it's not like the previous regimes we know that pakistan is a threat that's not going to go away unless we uh, deal with it in the appropriate manner so uh, yeah that, that's what it is so there's no question here it's just a statement it's something that he he wanted to share with us so yeah thank you so much for sharing that and you are right that is indeed the case 
Okay, Vishal Mahajan says, Will Ireland unite following the left-wing Sinn Féin's victory in the recent elections in Northern Ireland? Will this increase the demand for Scottish and Welsh nationalism as well? Interesting question. So what's happened is that uh, the Sinn Féin has become the largest party in the uh, Northern Ireland Assembly. Right? So what does that mean? So what is the, the story? So Sinn Féin is the party that was um, fighting for Ireland's, Northern Ireland's independence from, uh, from the British, from Britain. See, Northern Ireland is under British occupation. It is actually British-occupied Ireland. It's not Northern Ireland. It is British-occupied Ireland. Let's, let's, let's take a look at the map. Yeah, The map always helps when we deal with these things. So here we are. And if you look at the, the map here, this here is the I island of Ireland. And it is politically cut into two portions. The largest portion is main Ireland or just Ireland. And in the north, you have Northern Ireland. So Northern Ireland is under British military occupation. The people of Ireland wish to be free from Britain. Okay. So it is under illegal or, or so to say illegitimate British military occupation. And the history is bloody. The British have violated all kinds of human rights in Northern Ireland. They have acted like a terrorist force. And that is that is what it is. So uh, there was this resistance going on in Northern Ireland for decades. The Sinn Féin was involved in it. The IRA, Irish Republican Army, which has at least two factions, was involved in that and, and so on. Right, and this this went on for decades. So there was this entire uh, um, never-ending cycle of violence uh, that went on. The violence spilled over into England as well. Right, there were bombings by the IRA in England. Uh, the Prime Minister of Britain, Margaret Thatcher, once narrowly escaped with her life when her hotel room was bombed with uh, a mortar or something. And she narrowly escaped with her life because she was in a, in, in a different room at the time. So this is something that went on for decades, right? Uh, now, so then what happened? So somehow magically, all these troubles, they went away in 1998. Somehow, magically. It's very strange. So it's like this. In 1997, Tony Blair became the president of uh, Great Britain. So-called so Great Britain, right? Now, Tony Blair, was, he has been accused, rightly or wrongly, of being a US lapdog. Okay? He was a British, uh, he was a US lapdog. That's what people say. And there may be some, some justification to that allegation. So the moment this guy Tony Blair comes to power in England, the troubles in Ireland end magically. Yeah, And the Northern Ireland Assembly was established one year later in 1998. And then there were elections in Northern Ireland. And it became a functioning democracy. And all was well. And the Sinn Féin renounced violence and blah, 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 blah. As soon as a US puppet comes to power in, in Britain. And before Tony Blair came to power, the UK was not quite so amenable 
to US demands about its foreign policy and that's why and somehow coincidentally there was a lot of trouble in Ireland for decades but as soon as a proper lapdog comes to power all the troubles end I, i'm i'm just uh, pointing out this strange coincidence i'm not i'm not asking you to put two and two together okay so so the Sinn Féin re- renounced violence so the troubles ended after tony blair came to power just magic just magic happened overnight right and the assembly was established in 1998 and this year i think it was in may that the latest election was held so called election so in the may 2022 election in the northern ireland assembly the sinn fein became the largest political party they got the most seats they are the party with the most seats now they do not so this is the the thing is this the northern ireland assembly doesn't really have any real power northern ireland is still under british military occupation the northern ireland assembly parliament whatever you want to call it is it's something like the elections the british used to ha- hold in india before 1947 the so called provincial elections and all that that was just a joke a sham it was not democracy when you are under foreign occupation and that foreign occupation power holds election in your in your country those elections are illegitimate they are null and void that is not democracy in a real democracy your country needs to be free from from foreign interference and your own institutions like your own election commission without any external interference should hold elections that is real democracy and that's a legitimate election so the northern ireland assembly elections are illegitimate undemocratic they are a sham designed to fool the world into thinking that everything is well in ireland right so uh, the sinn fein's victory means nothing the sinn fein for whatever reason in 1997 98 they suddenly magically decided to renounce violence and to renounce the the demand for for independence so to say so their coming to power means nothing means absolutely nothing right it will not increase any demand for scottish or welsh welsh nationalism nothing of the sort the entire uk it it doesn't have an independent foreign policy or an independent internal policy it is one of the small elements of the overall us empire it is a vassal state it does whatever it's told and of course you have elections and also it all looks like things are well and there is democracy and all democracy actually is one of the biggest shams or scams that has been pulled upon the world in in very few places do you have genuine democracy yeah without any foreign interference so uh to to conclude this uh, so called election in northern ireland and the so called uh, victory of the sinn fein means absolutely nothing it's going to do nothing ireland will remain under british occupation and britain essentially is under us occupation whether you realize it or not so that's just how it is this is the uh anglosphere which is all uh more or less controlled from one location in north north america washington washington dc that's what it is okay samiksha goel says in rock edict 13 ashoka himself said that he has converted to buddhism how can you say that there is no evidence abhijit you are wrong okay samiksha says that so let's see what is the truth 
did ashok himself said that he had converted to buddhism let us take a look at what the rock edict 13 has to say about this let me share in my screen inscriptions of ashoka here we are so this is the translation of the inscriptions of ashok this is the 12th rock edict we need, we need to go to the 13th one where is the 13th rock edict okay this is the sanskrit or rather uh, devanagari transcription translator uh, devanagari uh, version of what is written there i think it was written in pali which is an apabhrancha language of sanskrit a descendant language of sanskrit so let's go uh, this is what the inscription looks like this is the transliteration of all of that into the latin script which you think is the english script and here is the the translation okay let's let's take a look at what it says it begins when king devanama priya pridarshi had been anointed 8 years the country of the kalingas was conquered by him 150000 in number were the men who were deported thence 100000 in number were those who were slain there and many times as many those who died after that now that kalinga has been taken the king is devoted to a zealous zealous study of morality to the love of morality and to the instruction of people in morality okay great there is this is the repentance of devanama priya on account of his conquest of the country of the kalingas for this is considered very painful and deplorable by devanama priya that while one is conquering an un- unconquered country slaughter death and deportation of people are taking place there but the following is considered even more deplorable than this by the king and so on and so forth obedience to blah 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 lots of stuff very nice pr on behalf of ashok if there is misfortune to friends acquaintances companions blah 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 this is shared by all men it is men is considered deplorable by that by devanam priya there is no country where these two classes the brahmans and the shramanas do not exist except among the yonas or the yavanas or the greeks and there is no place in any country where men are not indeed attached to some sect of some class or whatever therefore even the 100th part or the 1000th part of those people who were slain who died and who were deported at the time of the when the country was taken would be considered very deplorable by the king okay he is a great man full of morality desires towards being self control impartiality kindness and this conquest has been won repeatedly by devanam priya here among all his borders even as far as the distance of 600 yojanas where the yona king named antioga or antiochus is ruling and beyond this antiochus there are four kings who are ruling there is the king named tulamaya Tulamea Tulamea is Ptolemy Ptolemy of of Egypt yes uh named Antekina named Maka named Alexander and so on from the south the Cholas and the Pandyas are ruling as far as Tamraparni or Sri Lanka likewise in the king's territory among the Yonas and the Kambojas Nabakas Bojas etc 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 people are conforming to Devanama Priya's instruction in morality how strong a king he was so righteous so moral that everybody is conforming to his morality uh even those to whom envoys go do not go having heard of the duties of morality and so on so forth are conforming very good conforming good this conquest has been won by this everywhere causes the feeling of satisfaction good firm becomes the satisfaction and blah 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 this satisfaction is of no consequence the king thinks only the fruits of the other world are of great value 
and so on and so on and so on and so on and so forth. And that is where the edict ends. Where does it say he has conquered to Buddha, he has converted to Buddhism? Please, please tell me where does it say that the great king Ashok has converted to Buddhism? I just showed you the entire rock edict, the entire text. Look it up yourself. It's available in the public domain. I have not uh, dragged it out of some secret location. This is something you can Google and find for yourself. Do some homework and do some research of your, of your own. So please tell me, where does it say that the great king Ashok converted to Buddhism? Nowhere in Rock Edict 13 or any other Rock Edict does it say that the king Ashok converted to Buddhism. Please check your facts, right? There you are. Next question. Global Affairs says, this is a very large question. Uh, one request to all of the viewers, if you would like me to answer something, it is best if you keep your questions short, one or two sentences. I, I see some people ask very interesting questions, but they write a whole wall of text. So that's not, not going to work. Please keep your questions short. Anyhow, let's take this. The Kalinga Empire has been a glorious empire in itself. Okay. Apart from being one of the pioneers in maritime, in maritime business, they made India's oldest systematic dance form, Odyssey. The Lord Jagannath Temple was one of, one of the first, etc., 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 etc. Can you please explain about the policies of the Kalinga Empire and the objectives of the rulers? And how did the ancient Roman historian Pliny mention this region of India as Orites in his book called Natural History in 77 AD? He says this region as where and when there are there be no shadows okay kalinga look kalinga is one of the major major forces major engines that drove ancient india kalinga obviously is now what we call orissa it's on the eastern coast of india in case some of you don't know where orissa is i hope there's nobody like that but let me just share my screen and show where odisha is let's get out of the British Islands get come back to India. And here, on the eastern coast of India, you have Kalinga, which is now called Odisha. And the northern part of Odisha is called Utkal, which is Uttara Kalinga. So you have Bhubaneswar, you have Puri, you have the city of uh, Katak. If I can find it somewhere. Yeah, here it is, Katak and, and so on and so forth. Wonderful place, wonderful people, beautiful culture, great history, and so on and so forth, right? That is Kalinga. So Kalinga was one of the great engines, cultural, economic, military, maritime, etc. engines that drove ancient India. Uh, Kalinga is the region or the empire that spread Indian culture eastwards for the first time as far as we know. So this, this dates back to uh, at least two and a half or three thousand years before today. So Kalinga, the people of Kalinga used to trade with Southeast Asia, with uh, neighboring uh, kingdoms like, across the Bay of Bengal, like uh, Burma, Thailand, uh, Indonesia, Southeast Asia, Funan, uh, in Cambodia, in Vietnam, and so on and so forth, right? So they are the, the people of Kalinga are the ones who first inculturated Southeast Asia with Indian culture, exposed Southeast Asia to Indian culture. Right? And even today in Southeast Asia, in Indonesia, especially, 
I believe that Indian people are still called Kalingis, right? So that tells you how how old this connection is. So Kalinga definitely has a great history, great rich culture, beautiful culture, beautiful geography, great people, all of that. So, so that's what I can tell you about Kalinga. And uh, yeah, I don't know what Pliny wrote about Kalinga. He called it Orites. We don't know what Orites is. Maybe Orisha, maybe not. We don't know about that. But great history. It is certainly something that people should study about, read about, because it's an integral part of the greatness of ancient India. Right. Nanda Gopan says, why are almost all international cricket grounds in Australia located in the coastal region, even though it's a very large country or continent? Very good question. Let's take a look at... Okay, so it's like this. Uh, there is something called the Pareto principle, the 80-20 principle. So that kind of applies to Australia. So so all of the cricket grounds in Australia, where, where is Australia? Okay, let's take a look at Australia on the map. How do I get the map in here? One second. Where's the map? Here is the map. This is Australia. So the major cricket grounds in Australia are in Brisbane, in Sydney, in uh, Melbourne, Adelaide, uh, Hobart in Tasmania, and all the way east in uh, Perth. And there's also one in Darwin, I believe, some Cairns. There's one in Cairns and one in Darwin as well. But those are not really major cricket grounds. The major ones are the GABA in Brisbane, the SCG in Sydney, MCG in Melbourne, Adelaide Oval, and the Bell Reve Oval in Tasmania, and the WACA or the new ground in Perth, right? Now, why is it so? So let's take a look at a different image. Let's take a look at the population distribution of Australia, shall we? What's the population distribution of Australia like? So this is the population distribution of Australia. The brighter parts are where you have the highest concentrations of population in the country. And that is precisely where you have the major cricket grounds. As you can see in the eastern part, there is the, the region of Perth, where you have a high concentration of population. And the interior of the country is all empty. It's dry, it's parched, it's inhospitable. And nobody wants to live in that place because it's really hot, really, really, really hot. It's the coastal regions that, are, that have a nice, temperate, cool climate. So that's where the major population centers are. And that's where your cricket grounds are located. So it's very simple. The cricket grounds are located where you have the major concentrations of population. And why do you have major concentrations of population there? Because those are the nicest places to live in in Australia. Good climate and good access to all the resources. And obviously far away from the dry interior of Australia. So that's the simple reason why it is so. Chinmay says, why are Jupiter and Saturn called gas giants? Are they made of gas? Does it mean if hypothetically a human sets foot on one of these planets, there will be no solid surface to step upon? Good question. So Jupiter and Saturn are called gas giants because yes, they are made up of gas. Both of the planets both of these planets are roughly 
90% hydrogen and roughly 10% helium. It's a very small amount of other trace elements and all that, but that's very minor. Most of it is hydrogen and 10% uh, helium. So if you look at Jupiter, for instance, its mass is about 320 times the mass of the Earth. Okay, It's a massive planet, 320 times the mass of the Earth, roughly, approximately, give or take something. And uh, as you go further inside the planet, so it's all gas, so there is no actual surface. If a human being were to hypothetically set foot on the planet, you would just sink all the way all the down all the way down to the core, or until a region where your um, your body's density becomes less than the density of the hydrogen. Because as you go deeper into Jupiter, the atmospheric pressure becomes greater and greater. Eventually, the gas becomes liquefied and very 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 hot. So I think the surface of Jupiter is defined as the as the region where the 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 atmospheric pressure is equal to the uh, equal to the atmospheric pressure of the earth that is defined arbitrarily as the surface of the planet but it has no actual solid surface it has a solid core most likely maybe it's made up of metallic hydrogen which is a weird form phase of hydrogen which may be surrounded by molecular hydrogen maybe it has a rocky core maybe it has a carboniferous core if there is carbon at the core of Jupiter, it will be compressed so much that it will become diamond. So maybe there is a massive amount of diamond at the core of Jupiter. And the same goes for Saturn. In the case of Saturn, the mass of Saturn is roughly 100 times that of Earth. Maybe 90 times, 95, something like that. And uh, so this, the internal structure is similar in some ways to Jupiter. In in the case of Jupiter, the core temperature of the planet is about 35,000 degrees Celsius. In the case of Saturn, it's about 10,000 degrees Celsius. So that's the kind of temperature you have. So that is the reason why these two planets are called gas giants. They are giant planets and they are made up of gas, mostly hydrogen, some helium, right? So that is the reason why. Uh, someone, someone says, can we see planets of other stars? Telescopes. Well, if you have a telescope of your own and if you try to look at a star, you will not see planets. You can't. So not through your typical amateur or, or backyard astronomy telescopes. But you can nowadays use a specialized instrument called a coronagraph. And you can attach it to the major telescopes in the major uh, observatories uh, on our planet, play, uh, observatories like the Wendelstein Observatory in Germany or the Hale Telescope at the Palomar Observatory in California and the US or the European Southern Observatory, VLS, Very Large Telescope in Chile and so on and so forth. These are massive telescopes and you can attach this instrument called a coronagraph to these telescopes in a technique called direct imaging. And what it does is that it obscures the the surface of the star and if you obscure the, the star itself then you can suddenly see what's around the star in that case you are actually able to observe planets visually through telescopes uh, using this technique so let's take a look at uh, some images if i can find some of uh, corona uh, coronagraph images of exoplanets let's go to google our good friend google Okay, coronagraph, coronagraph 
exoplanet images. Let's take a look at this. What does it throw up? So this here could be that. Yeah, in this case, as you, as you can see, the the uh, the disk of the star is obscured, and you can see some uh, some of these uh, exoplanets around that. This is a GIF image, and if you look here, the arrow it demonstrates the movement of an exoplanet around a star. So this is a direct image. This this technique is called direct imaging, imaging, and you can actually see exoplanets. This again here shows uh, an image of an exoplanet and so on. So yes, nowadays it is possible and as uh, this technology uh, gets better, you may be able to see better and better images of planets through this technique. So yes, in some cases we can actually see exoplanets through the telescope. Okay, Ankit Kumar says, the country which has dominance in the Indian Ocean has dominance over the world. What should the Indian Navy and the Indian government do to make this strategic location fall in their favor? How Andaman and Nicobar's military strategy is making India unbeatable? Can you please explain this? Okay, uh, let's go back to the map. Where is the map? Right, let's take a look at the Andaman uh, Nicobar Islands and the Indian Ocean region. Okay, so this here is India and south of India is the Indian Ocean region. As you can see, India has this incredibly central geographical position in the Indian Ocean region. It's a God-gifted position. It dominates the entire Indian Ocean region. Now, why do people say that the country that dominates the Indian Ocean region will dominate the world? It's because the majority of the world's trade takes place in this region. So it uh, there are multiple choke points in this region. The first choke point is Suez, the Suez Canal region. So as you can see, this is the city, the, the Egyptian city of Suez, Al-Suez. And there is this canal, so which connects the Mediterranean Sea to the Red Sea. So that, that is a major choke, choke point. The second choke point is the Strait of Bab al-Mandeb, which is right here, between Djibouti and Yemen, the Gulf of Aden. Then you have the uh, Strait of Hormuz, which connects the Persian Gulf to the Gulf of Oman. That is another choke point. Then you have certain choke points that people may not be aware of, which pass through the Lakshadweep Islands and the Andaman Islands. And then you have the two major choke points here, which is the Strait of Malacca, this narrow region, and the Sunda Strait over here. Is it called the Sunda Strait? It's called something else. Whatever it is, it's a narrow choke point over here. And all of these choke points are easily accessible to India. So if India has a powerful navy and a powerful air force, India can close off, shut down these choke points at will. And that's why India has such a huge opportunity to become a major geopolitical player. I'm not saying India should blackmail the world or anything. India should be a responsible geopolitical power. And India always has been that. But it is something that you can India can use to make China behave. If China indulges in any misadventure in the in the Tibet-India border, then India can make China behave by its actions in the Indian Ocean region. Because the majority of China's imports and exports go through 
all of these choke points and india can with its navy and its air force control this so that is why it is said that the country that dominates the indian ocean region will certainly dominate the world and what should the indian navy indian navy and indian government do about this india needs to invest in a better navy uh, in in a more massive navy we need lo- a lot more ships we need a lot more submarines india needs to stop investing in aircraft carriers which are nice to see we don't need that we need submarines aircraft carriers were the capital ship of the 20th century the submarine is the capital ship of the 21st century it's virtually indetectable it is invisible these are stealthy deadly silent killers that's what india needs to invest in conventional submarines and nuclear submarines and india should invest in a in a coast guard which is more powerful you can call it the navy or whatever and we already have these unsinkable aircraft carriers the andaman islands the nicobar islands and the lakshadweep islands so we don't really need to invest in these massive ships that cost billions of dollars we should invest in submarines and lots of submarines because quantity has a quality of its own so these are the things that india needs to do now the second question is that how do, do the how andaman and nicobar's military strategy is making india unbeatable so these days i'm getting this question over the past couple of weeks but apparently india has this unbeatable strategy in the andaman nicobar islands and india is killing china or whatever i don't know where this comes from but wherever you getting these ideas from it is not consistent with reality which strategy in the andaman islands is making india unbeatable what india should do in the andaman and nicobar islands is to militarize them india should create multiple air strips air force bases india should invest in multiple ports in these regions in in these islands in submarine bases in naval bases india should create a2 ad bubbles anti access area denial bubbles by putting by installing batteries of cruise missiles anti aircraft missiles all that if india does that then it will make india virtually unbeatable india is not doing that so i don't know what strategy people are talking about these i don't know where these ideas come from that there is some strategy that is making india unbeatable in the andaman islands india is virtually doing nothing there is i think one or two air strips or air force stations maybe one maybe two at most in this region i think it's known to everyone campbell bay so that's what it is and beyond that there is very little there may be five or six or maybe 10 sukhoi fighters sitting there at any given point in time if if we are lucky maybe one or two uh, poseidon poseidon anti submarine warfare airplanes and maybe a couple of indian navy ships and that's all there are no submarine bases there there's not much of development that's happened there so there is no strategy that as such so any claim that anyone is making that there is some incredibly unbeatable strategy in this region that india is using to beat china or defeat china or kill china that is wishful thinking it is not consistent with reality i see india is in a good position vis-a-vis -vis china if china were to start a war with india we can deal with it properly we can defeat them we can defeat them in a defensive war and we can make them uh, suffer significant losses but india is not in a position to, to start a war against china so we are still uh, if we compare the two militaries and economies we are still significantly inferior to the chinese 
but we have certain advantages that the chinese don't have and they will not mess with us because of those region reasons but there is nothing happening in the andaman nicobar islands that can be considered to be an un- unbeatable or whatever strategy so so that is certainly not the case right next question sujata says namaskar my question is when the us can keep an eye on indian nuclear tests with their satellites why can't we keep an eye on terrorist factories present in pakistan with our satellites and expose them to the world and pressurize pakistan to give permission to india to the indian army to eliminate terrorists okay the americans have maybe hundreds of military satellites or spy satellites right in in orbit these are deployed all around the world india also has a number of satellites that are classified as remote sensing satellites etc which essentially are satellites with specialized uh, instruments which view the earth which which look at the earth the surface of the earth in a variety of frequencies and wavelengths these satellites have very good resolutions maybe a meter maybe a foot maybe a centimeter yeah and they may because of various wavelengths and all they may be able to peer through clouds they may be even able to see what's happening on the ground in darkness at night possibly right we don't quite know what all is going on there but we have india has a number of satellites what the exact number is let's not go into that and these satellites keep an eye on india's surroundings whether it is the west in pakistan whether it is in pakistan occupied kashmir or wherever else whether it is in tibet whether it's in the indian ocean region wherever we have the assets in place to keep an eye on everything that's happening so we are certainly keeping an keeping an eye on the terrorist factories present in pakistan with our satellites these satellites you can call them remote sensing satellites or military satellites or spy satellites same thing now let's say we are looking we are, we are seeing what's happening in pakistan terrorist factories what is the point of exposing it to the world yeah here we are here we go we have the proof what's the point the world knows what pakistan is doing the world has known for decades what pakistan is doing how many times will we expose them to the world it makes no difference the world doesn't care the world doesn't care they know what pakistan has been doing they they know that the pakistanis have been bleeding india since the 1980s in kashmir and other places the question is real question is who was funding all that who was funding pakistani terrorism in india who was financing pakistani terrorism in india that is the real question and because it is the us that was doing it that's why the world will always turn a blind eye to pakistani activities so exposing the pakistanis is going to solve no problem whatsoever they will just ignore it the western media will never run such a story they know what's happening now about pressurizing pakistan so that they will give permission to the indian army to eliminate terrorists the indian army needs permission not from pakistan but from the prime minister of india that is the only permission the indian army needs when they the indian army gets a go ahead from the prime minister of india they don't go and knock on pakistan's door do you remember balakot do you remember the surgical strikes did the indian army go and knock and take permission no 
So when the time is right, the right things will be done. We don't need anybody's permission. We know what the Pakistani army is up to. We know where the terrorist factories are. Everything is known. When the time is right, the right action will be taken. There's no question of taking permission or exposing anyone. There's no need to expose anything. There's no need to take any permission. All that needs to be done is to act when the appropriate, when the moment is opportune. When will the time be right? That is for the Indian government to calculate based on the global geopolitical scenario. Aman Singh says, what should be the pro- most prominent personality traits of a renowned military leader? Look, uh, personality doesn't matter. Uh, there have been military leaders who have been extremely cheerful and boisterous and social. There have been military leaders who have been very reserved, introverted, aloof. So the personality doesn't matter. But what is the most important characteristic or trait of a military leader? The most important characteristic of a military leader is that they should succeed. That's all. Succeed. And when I say a military leader should succeed, I don't mean that they should win every single battle. No, 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 no. no. You can fail in the short term. Take the great Mongol conqueror Shri Chinggis Khan, for instance, as an example. His main characteristic is that he did not lose a single military campaign after he became the great Khan of the Mongols. He did not, he won every single military campaign. But his army lost a few battles here and there in those military campaigns. A military campaign is like a World Cup. A World Cup. When your cricket team or your football team goes to the World Cup, they're going to play a number of matches, a number of games. It doesn't matter if you lose one or two games here and there. What matters is that you win the final match. You reach there. You have to first qualify for the quarterfinals. You make make sure you do that. Then you qualify to the semifinals, then the final, and then you win the final. Before that, in the group phase, it's okay to lose one or two games as long as you can qualify for the next round. So a military campaign is like a World Cup. It is okay to win, to lose one or two small battles here and there. You can make a couple of chess sacrifices if you want. But overall, you have to win the World Cup. So a military campaign is like a World Cup. The great Sri Chinggis Khan, the great, the kind, the benevolent, the wise leader Chinggis Khan, he did not ever lose a single military campaign. So the most important characteristics, characteristic of a military leader is they should win. They should succeed. That's what, that's what matters. So that is what I can offer to you in brief. Okay, Samiksha Goyal says, I think ethics are very important and we will never be able to condemn Pakistan for terrorism if we ourselves join hands with a terrorist organization. Supporting the Taliban means you are going against humanity. Narak mein jagah mein pakki milegi. You know, I don't remember who it was that said this. I think it was the great Rajendra Chola, I think, who said this. He said, that if you are a king and you do everything and you do whatever it takes to ensure the long-term prosperity and success of your empire, then you can never go to heaven. 
you will go to hell because you will have to do things that other people will see as morally unjust or morally or or immoral as a ruler the highest morality for a ruler the great vishnu gupta chanakya said this the highest morality for a ruler is to ensure the long term security and prosperity of the country of the nation of the kingdom and its people that's all and you have to do whatever it takes to ensure this you may have to indulge in assassinations of political leaders you may have to wage wars with foreign countries you may have to join hands with foreign terrorist organizations to destroy your enemies you have to do whatever it takes to ensure you the long term security and prosperity of your country of your nation of your kingdom and its people your duty is to your people and your people only not to everybody else you may have to be immoral for that you may have to be unethical for that and you may have to go to hell after you die for that but that is a sacrifice you should be willing to take willing to take willing to make and if you cannot do this you are not worthy of being a king that's how it goes ethics and morality are fine for the common man and woman for a king it's a different ball game altogether so these wonderful words you know they they nice in books and all that but the real world is a real world right so that's how it goes that's how the game is always played and uh, whether you agree with it or not well who are we to criticize what uh, what uh, vishnu gupta chanakya said he is the man and he's right okay this is uh, the next question okay this is by Tetraklitos, Tetraklitos. I can read the Greek alphabet because in physics we have Greek Greek symbols, right? So Tetraklitos says, "Namaskaram." There is a theory that says that ancient Indians, probably Sanskrit or Tamil, probably whatever, uh, explorers of the so-called Indianized kingdoms of the Malay archipelago and other southeast asian islands reached the pacific coast of south america by crossing the pacific ocean and are considered as the ancestors of the olmecs what are your views about this let's go to, to the uh, map once again where is the map here's the map and the map and the map okay this is the map so the theory like uh, tetraklitos says is that ancient indians according to this theory or whatever hypothesis may have crossed the pacific ocean and reached uh, southern america south america what is said here reached the pacific coast of south america by crossing the pacific ocean and maybe the ancestors of the olmecs okay so as you can see the pacific ocean is vast it's vast it's a, it's a big huge massive expanse of water we do know that about 5000 years before today ancient indians did make it to australia right and the only way to reach australia is by sea so indians could do that they had the ability to cross the ocean reach australia maybe they did it through from indonesia maybe from kalinga maybe from southern india but they had to cross the ocean to go to australia we know it because 
there is unmistakable genetic evidence of indian genetics in the australian aboriginal populations and this introgression happens around 5000 years before today when the saraswati sindhu phase of our civilization was at its peak so if the indians could do that 5000 years ago it is certainly possible it is certainly within the realm of possibility that some indians may have crossed the pacific ocean and reached the pacific coast of south america it is possible now the olmecs the olmec civilization let's go back to the map sorry the olmec civilization was found in eastern mexico on the eastern coast on the atlantic coast of mexico which is not quite far from the western coast from the pacific coast and some uh, artifacts of the olmecs were also found on the western coast of mexico as well and the olmec civilization dates back to about 3000 years before today right and if you look at the artifacts the the massive stone carvings etc that you that the olmecs left behind they uh, let's let's uh, see what that looks like shall we let me go back to google uh once again let me share that olmec carvings Olmec carvings or Olmec statues or whatever. So these are the colossal heads that the Olmecs uh, left behind. And if you look at the facial features of all of these uh, people that are depicted in these massive stone carvings, they look like people who are of African origin. I mean, th- that's the kind of facial features that you see mostly, as you can see. These facial features don't resemble Indians. these facial features resemble people of african origin or ethnicity i mean that's the stereotypical look that you find in africa among among certain african peoples right not in india not the, the average indian person doesn't look like this right so from the circumstantial evidence that we have over here it would appear that if somebody crossed over crossed an ocean and reached uh, this region it may have been people from africa now we don't have as far as i know uh, a skeletal evidence from the olmec civilization if we we can find that then they could maybe uh, do some dna testing and figure out what sort of uh, haplogroups etc are present among the population so uh, as of today we don't have sufficient data points and sufficient evidence to either prove or disprove a theory of indian origin but from the circumstantial evidence that we have it looks like it's not indian it looks like it's probably some some african origin ethnic group possibly possibly <clears throat> so my views are, are that we st- still don't have sufficient data therefore we cannot really come to any conclusions but from whatever little evidence we have it looks like it may be from africa not from india but time will tell okay mark douglas says if chavda is right and the west is just an american hegemony responsible for all the bad in the world i know so the okay whatever responsible for whatever ask yourself why does all mass migration always happen from the east to the west i am not seeing millions of displaced syrians fleeing to russia they all come to the eu I am not seeing millions of displaced Europeans fleeing to India either. The flow of people is definitely from India, not to India. 
and therefore chowda is wrong brilliant impeccable logic by mark douglas see so what i have said is this that the term superpower is a euphemism for empire the united states exhibits all the classical characteristics of an empire of an imperial power and you know what the characteristics are from the study of in, of human history 10000 years of human history going back to the persians to the to the akkadians to the romans to the various indian empires the chinese mongols and so on and so forth right there are certain characteristics that an empire has and the us has that the us is essentially a continuation of the british empire the anglo saxon saxon empire i'm not saying the us is responsible for all everything that's bad in the world they have maintained a certain kind of order which and which is predicated on their hegemony and their writ but that's just how it is i'm not saying the us is responsible for everything that's bad in the world some people try to misconstrue that in that form it's not quite the case but and the point the mark douglas is making is that all mass migration always happens from the east to the west and therefore i must be wrong that the us is an empire really when we are talking about mass migrations about 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 people migrating from point a to point b in search of a better life they don't care whether they are going to an empire or not all that matters is that they will have a better life better living standards if you look at india in 1947 india had a life expectancy of 28 years or 30 years india's gdp per capita was was in the pits everything of value had been stolen plundered from india by the british the west has been had been enriched at the expense of india india was a hell hole that's what the british made of india and therefore indians were desperate to escape this hell hole especially after the the regimes that ensued after 1947 you know the british puppet regimes i mean not quite the british puppet regimes but uh, various prime ministers etc who did not do anything to ameliorate the indian economy and and make lives better for india for the people of india for for decades and therefore indians wanted to emigrate immigrate out of india and if you look at the west the per capita gdp in the west is like at that time was more than 50 times that of india massively better living standards and so who cares if it's an empire or whatever you you can get a better life there by by moving there and then becoming a citizen there so that's what everybody wanted even today let's go back 2000 years the roman empire was a was a hegemonic power cruel power they indulge in massive genocides all across europe see what they did to the helvetian peoples see what they did to the celtic peoples see the, the read about the military campaigns of julius caesar see what they did in carthage wide scale genocide and yet all roads led to rome everybody wanted to go and live in rome because you had the highest and best living standards there as long as you became a citizen of the of the roman empire you were treated well so that's how it goes so this argument is not quite uh grounded in logic i'm afraid to say right ramalakshmi says you have said that the decline in us imperialism over the world and their influence is dropping my question is if such a superpower is in decline in what way does it get affected decades later is it in standards of living or economy or military or only the influence over the nations what sectors would be affected if any 
when any power goes into decline everything declines the economy declines the rule of law internally in the in the, in the country declines its influence globally declines its geopolitical influence declines its military reach declines its industries crumble you can see that over and over again in history if you look at the western roman empire how they declined they were the greatest power in the world at least in, in europe in the western hemisphere for quite a long time and then what happened italy went into like the dark ages right what happened to the byzantine empire they also were a massive empire and then they slowly shrank 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 and then they, eventually it was just, just like a city state around constantinople the same thing you can see in various other empires it's a gradual process that takes centuries sometimes usually decades 30 40 50 years it's a slow process of decline and decay i don't wish that on anybody but it's it's a cyclic process the world the the history of the world shows that empires rise and fall rise and fall rise and fall in cycles okay so uh if a superpower or, or an empire is in decline there is uh, all sectors are affected sometimes you may have a civil war if you look at the dynastic cycles in china which are imperial cycles usually when an empire or a dynasty crumbles there's a period of extended civil war that's what chinese history shows us again and again and again so that is from the example of china in other places like uh, rome etc you also had episodic events like civil wars and strife and all that industries would go for a toss and so on so it's never an orderly process it's often very messy and that typically when when you have an empire at a global scale it goes into decline it's going to create a lot of chaos and a lot of instability in the world and that is never good for anybody so one hopes that things uh, go go well and uh, but let's see let's see how it goes you know we we cannot uh, stop the the tides of history and things will proceed in a certain way okay palak chudasama says my 11 year old daughter nitya has been asking this question for weeks now how do blind people dream or can they dream and my 7 year old son mrig asked a strange question what is the life cycle of air you know kids ask the most interesting questions kids still have an active imagination and a curiosity and and a thirst for knowledge and after they go they spend a few years in the education system all of that is smashed out of their heads so i'm glad that kids are asking such interesting questions so uh, let me take the second question first which is asked by mrig what is the life cycle of air see air is a gas the air that we breathe that we live in is part of the atmosphere of the earth right the atmosphere of the earth is technically or or it is it is uh, by convention uh, said to extend 100 kilometers above the earth's surface and beyond that you have space so that's just the convention so the air we are breathing is part of the atmosphere of the earth it is a gas more about 70% i believe nitrogen 28% or so oxygen the rest is carbon dioxide and so on and so forth right so it is simply gas molecules it is not a living creature 
or or a living being it's not uh, made of living organisms and since it is not a living thing it doesn't have a life cycle right so if you look at the history of the earth over the past 3 and 1/2 4 billion years or, or, or whatever how long however long it has been since the earth formed in the primordial solar system the atmosphere of the earth has undergone major changes and significant uh, compositional changes so that happens over millions hundreds of millions and billions of years in the beginning the earth's atmosphere was very very different uh much of it was what was it i'm not i don't quite remember what was the composition but there was very little oxygen and there was a and then then what happened was there was this uh, these bacteria that 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 were living in the oceans and they gave off a lot of oxygen which caused a mass extinction event that there is the great oxygenation catastrophe they call it that happened about 3 4 billion years ago uh, you can look it up how when it happened and then oxygen became the pre, one of the major components of the atmosphere and it is something that is indispensable for us without it we will die so it's something that has changed a lot over time but it doesn't actually have a life cycle because it is not a living thing right the other question is uh, how do blind people dream or can they dream yes of course they will dream now it depends some people most people who are blind are people who became blind because of some illness or some accident or something which means that in the past they could see they once had the they once had sight or vision and then they lost it so for such people they still have the memory of 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 seeing things and such people even though they cannot see with their eyes when they sleep they would still dream things that they can see but a small percentage of people who are blind are born blind and they have never seen anything in their life for such people i would imagine that the the dreams would be through the other senses auditory senses or whatever so they may dream things without the experience of any kind of vision so that's a very interesting question so so most blind people who dream would still still have visions in their dreams even though they can, their eyes don't function but a small percentage who are born blind would not would dream in the form of sounds and other experiences that's how it would typically be okay let's uh, take one or two more questions lakshya says i as a 16 year old my parents keep asking me what career and degree i want to pursue they are also asking me what at what what which university i want to join here in australia i absolutely hate the prison that is school as i walk to school i am cursing under my breath i want to be an entrepreneur how do i find a business mentor and learn skills i am mainly looking for guidance please help okay you are 16 years old you want to be an entrepreneur you hate school i get it school is a pain and you forced to study stuff that doesn't really have any real relevance in in the real world and so on yeah but uh so you're still very young you have a long way to go i would offer a word of caution firstly entrepreneurship looks like a very glamorous thing you make money you live the fast life and you succeed and all that but the truth is that very few entrepreneurs actually succeed it's a long process of many years it's a long grind the success stories you see are never overnight success there's a whole period of 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 grind that that lies behind that 
all overnight success takes 5 10 15 years <laughs> right and most entrepreneurs and most businesses fail or there are multiple failures before you have a success and that's how it is so and and the life of an entrepreneur is often very very harsh very painful very brutal very agonizing and that's that's what is never shown in the media and movies and all that so that is something you have to keep in mind secondly you may want to be an entrepreneur but do you have the skills the aptitude for that of course you can develop skills for sure so how do you do that so i would say that you know what you should still go to school you should still go to college you should get your degree as 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 a backup plan and in the meanwhile what you can do is you can attend business conferences or whatever in your free time meet other entrepreneurs who are doing stuff try something on your own with some small amount of money yeah read as many business books as you can it's not easy you have to put in the hard work uh, give yourself 2 years and and try to read 100 business books go to amazon go into the category of books for business look at all the five star reviews or four star plus reviews take the top 100 books and try to read all of these 100 books in the next 2 years go to business conferences go and mingle with entrepreneurs and try to gain some kind of um, wisdom from them talk to them ask them about what they do how what was the journey like what is their process like right and that's how you make connections and if you're lucky you may even find a mentor or two and so that's that's the process you have to go through it's a long process you're still 16 you have a long way to go i certainly wish you all the best but i would offer a word of caution that you should still go through school go through college get whatever degree you need to do you need to get whatever is best for you based on your personal aptitude and strengths and always have a backup plan don't put all of your eggs in one basket don't put all of your money on just one horse always have plan b plan c so that's what i can say all the best sir okay one last question ashwatthama says what is the difference between reading a book or listening to listening to an audio book which do you prefer i prefer to read physical books i i read really fast my reading my reading speed is is, is very very high uh it's something i've developed over the years and decades i read a lot so i prefer reading because when someone talks this they talk at a certain speed my mind it, it, it kind of it's frustrating i i read so much faster than somebody can speak i kind of speak also fast because of that perhaps so i prefer reading books but there is a certain value that audiobooks have even for me so for instance if you go for a run let's say you want to go for a run in the morning half an hour one hour whatever run for an hour when you're running as long as it's it's not in the in traffic if it's on a treadmill or whatever you can listen to an audiobook at the same time so that is a good experience that's a nice experience you're running you you it's exhilarating and you're also listening to an audiobook so that is a good way of 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 listening to an audiobook also if you're in the gym exercising working out you can put an audiobook on in the background so or if you're cooking i enjoy cooking at times so if you're cooking and you you have this time you're spending in the kitchen you can keep an audiobook or a podcast or something on and and keep it going in the background so that that helps so that's how i use audiobooks but typically i prefer to read physical books all right let's take a few questions from the live chat if you all have more questions you want to ask me now is your time to shine my friends go for it 
is learning math a skill yes learning math is a skill there to anything there there are two components fortuna <laughs> and vertu so not like that but if you have the aptitude of doing something let's say you are a you are a gifted runner right or you're a gifted swimmer so you have the ability to swim well or to run well but if you don't practice if you don't put in the hard yards if you don't spend the hours perfecting your craft then even though you are talented you will not reach your full potential similarly if you have the aptitude for math but you don't practice if you don't put in the hours and hours and hours you will not good, become good at it so yes learning math is a skill and more than talent hard work is what matters in anything so yes learning math is a skill um katapane bahubali ko kyumara yeah i don't remember kyumara but it was an interesting story um what's the history of sati pratha please watch uh, the conversation i had with uh, dr minakshi jain on this channel in which we go into detail about the history of sati pratha and the myths and fabrications that have been constructed around this so called supposed practice please watch my 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 interaction with dr minakshi jain on this channel and you will get everything you would like to know about this particular matter um okay what else do we have my views on tashkent files any relation between the former prime minister indira gandhi and the kgb that are two these are two different questions if you want to talk about the tashkent files the uh, lal bahadur shastri case etc please watch my interaction with anuj dar on this channel podcast number podcast number 1 i think it was in january this year on this channel so if you want to know about that go and and watch that podcast you will get to know whatever you need okay where else are we mm. what are the possibilities of indo pacific dominance of india in the next 10 years zero we need to dominate the indian ocean not the indo pacific pacific is too far that will come in the future if it does what's your view on the bharat series book by j saideepak i haven't read it sorry maybe i will some day and then i'll talk about it does india have too much democracy like the chinese say yes india has too much democracy <laughs> too much democracy what is this too much democracy right where are we i found something and it disappeared okay uh was sri lanka part of ancient india as gandhara sri lanka was definitely part of indian civilization the, the sri lankan people their ethnicity is indian let's say you are in london england and you see a person walking down the street who is of sri lankan origin what is the first thing that comes to your mind this person is indian right so the sri lankan ethnicity is the indian ethnicity we are the same genetic same dna same origins everything and culturally also the sinhalese and the tamils are indians their culture is indian 
So yes, it was just as much part of India, civilizationally, as Gandhar. See, today we think about nations, nation states. That is a very new concept. The nation state concept is a very new concept. It's been around for a fraction of, of an instant in the context, big picture of human history. Historically, we had civilizations, nations and empires. India was always a civilization. India is a civilization state and Gandhar used to be part of Indian civilization. And Sri Lanka, you can say, is still part of the civilizational fabric of India, even though it's not part of the nation state of India. So, yeah, that's what it is. What qualities should I develop to become an IFS officer? IFS means Indian Foreign Service. You want to become a diplomat. To be a diplomat, uh, you should be very much in touch with current affairs. You need to understand the history of the world very well, especially the history of the last 100 years, uh, starting from the 20th century onwards. So the turn of the century, whatever happened, the First World War, the, the Second World War, the Cold War, you need to understand the cause and effect sequence, the cause and effect chain, the causality chain, the dynamics. You need to understand geopolitics. You need to understand economics. Um, it, it would help if you learn multiple languages also, you know, at least one foreign language. We all speak this foreign language called English, but one more, one additional foreign language, things like that. I, I don't know what uh, exam you have to pass. I think it's the same exam and then they select people from, for the IFS, IPS, IFS, etc. Whatever. Uh, so I'm not quite sure what the mechanics and dynamics of the selection procedure are. But from my perspective, if you want to be a diplomat, you should know all of this. And eventually you'll be assigned to some nation perhaps. And you would want to learn or study more about the nation, its history and its political, uh, political structure and all that. Yeah. So that is what you need to do to be a good IFS officer, a good diplomat. All right, let's uh, see one or two more questions. Um, what's your view on dark matter with reference to Verita Serum video? I have not watched um, the, the said video, so I don't know. Uh, dark matter, as, as we know, is one of the major unknown components of the universe. The universe is about 70% dark energy, about 25%, roughly, 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 roughly 69, 70% dark energy, roughly 25%, dark, 24%, 25% dark matter, and roughly 5% or so visible matter. What is dark matter? That's what we are trying to figure out. What is dark energy? We don't have the least idea. But at least dark matter, we have some 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 clues. It's something that interacts only gravitationally. The weak interaction seems to, well, there's no evidence for it. So mostly, most likely it's only gravitationally interacting. Maybe it is uh, super heavy dark matter, SHDM, cold dark matter. Um, and there are a number of candidates that, that have been proposed and so on. So this video that you're referring to, unfortunately, I have not seen it. But this is what I can say in very brief about, about dark matter. Right. Um, let's take maybe one question. Let us see. Let us see. 
why did ancient southeast asians adopt indian culture rather than rather than chinese culture because indian culture was way more influential in india as a civilization was way more influential and far reaching than the chinese civilization and culture indians were enterprising india was a ma- major maritime culture and civilization indians went everywhere by boat and by ship mainly by ship that's how indians reached all over southeast asia and indian culture was not supremacist exclusivist and predatory it actually contributed something valuable and positive to southeast asia it was never imposed upon these people by force and that's why they were so impressed by indian culture that they adopted it for themselves and today you have various local examples local manifestations of indian culture all across southeast asia and that is now their native culture so it's because of india's enormously influential nature that this happened the chinese statesman and diplomat hu shi said that ancient india conquered china without ever sending a single soldier across the himalayas we conquered china culturally and the chinese greedily lapped up indian culture and absorbed it deep into their civilization today they claim that buddhism is a chinese thing Uh, well for many for all intents and purposes buddhism you could say is something that has chinese characteristics today so they are trying to claim indian culture and civilization for their own well that's how it is <clears throat> all right let's uh, shall we take one more question or are we done i can see lots of questions here but uh, um Okay last question is has india crossed the lsc as claimed by the chinese foreign minister that they found indian weapons i think this claim was made during the galwan clashes and the media or the social media is trying to regurgitate this today it is something from 2020 it's a claim they had made in 2020 after the galwan clash in order to justify their their misadventure so that old news report from for 2020 is now being republicized today in 2021 and now everyone thinks that this is what they've claimed today no it's an old claim anyhow that we don't quite recognize the lsc or we do recognize it to, to, to some extent but like they say in diplomatic parlance that both sides have differing perceptions of the line of actual control so there is no accepted boundary it's some rough thing that nobody quite agrees upon and therefore these claims are made from time to time we don't have to take them very seriously all right ladies gentlemen thank you very much for the questions very interesting session as always the questions are very always very interesting so please keep it coming next week let's let's do two sessions how about that right so until then thank you very much for your questions thank you for your viewership and i will see you next week thank you take care Bye.